1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Dr. Melik Frataltai, a musician and a neuroscientist. Today, I will be your host, and we will be talking to Dr. Quinn Eastman about his new book, The Woman Who Couldn't Wake Up, Hypersomnia and the Science of Sleepiness, published by the Columbia University Press this year. Queen Eastman is a technical editor at Emory University School of Medicine. He was trained as a biochemist, receiving a PhD from Yale University, and has worked as a journalist covering local government and environmental issues, as well as sleep research. The Woman Who Couldn't Wake Up tells Anna's story, and the broader story of her diagnosis, idiopathic hypersomnia a shadowy sibling of narcolepsy that has emerged as a focus of sleep research and patient advocacy. Quinn Eastman explores the science around sleepiness, recounting how researchers have been searching for more than a century for the substances that tip the brain into slumber. Hello, Quinn. How are you?
0: I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us today. So before we start discussing your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? I
0: uh, I am a science writer. Uh I've uh been working at Emory University for a long time. Um I have some experience in the lab a long time ago, uh, which uh serves me well. Uh and uh but I transitioned to writing about science and and um uh, biomedical research uh, a while ago and uh, that's what I do.
1: And do you miss uh, doing research in a lab?
0: Um, yeah, uh, just doing things with your hands uh, 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 a little bit and also, you know, kind of going where clues take you. Uh, but yeah, the, some of the stuff that is that they do now in the laboratory, um you know i i don't know how to do it (laughs) so uh i it would take i had thought i've thought about it i uh, you know um and actually with this we can talk about it later uh with some of the genetics i had uh i'm trying to kind of get into the back door um to try try doing some research again but the you know, technology has 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 advanced, and uh, I need to I need to catch up.
1: <laughs> and how did you come to write uh, the woman who couldn't wake up? And why did you decide to write it now?
0: Well, um, so this uh, the book grew out of a story that I was following at Emory um, as part of being a science writer at the medical school there, um, and so. And it has kind of three strands. One is the, the personal story of Anna Sumner, who's the uh, the the woman in the title, the woman who couldn't wake up, and um, how how she, you know she was in a she was in a crisis basically, and um, some doctors were able to help her and um, and get her through that and um but the, the the her personal story linked to two other things one was this mysterious sleepy stuff uh that was detected in her cerebrospinal fluid and which uh the researchers thought was making her sleepy um and this this idea has this long history but the the researchers were never able to, or have not so far been able to announce what this stuff is although they have a lot of clues uh so there's this history of uh researchers who study sleep um isolating these substances which are connected with sleep to say that they 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 embody sleepiness and you know uh so that what they found with anna kind of links back to that whole idea And then the other one is the story of her diagnosis, which is idiopathic hypersomnia. And, um, you know, at the when I was started on uh, following the story, you know, people with idiopathic hypersomnia, there really wasn't much for them in terms of um, information uh, about what they should uh, what kind of care they should receive. um, there weren't support groups. There weren't really any organizations for them. Uh, and that over the course of me following the story, that changed. Um, and that's kind of one of the biggest kind of positive outcomes uh, that I that I point to in the book is that, you know, even if the scientific uh, detective story was not resolved, um, there is at least that it let there's was the formation of a community uh and uh the the people now have kind of a representation and can find out more about what other people are dealing with and that's and that's a good thing
1: so actually this leads um the 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 conversation to a very interesting question so why do we actually sleep and what makes us become sleepy do the scientists Uh, exactly understand this
0: well they uh the, uh, there are some good ideas about why we sleep. Um, and then I, get, I think the short answer is because our brains and bodies need it to. Uh, um, there's a, an idea that sleep is necessary to sort of recalibrate the synapses in the brain and uh, and make everything right again so that we can uh, accumulate more memories <laughs> and uh, so that our brains work properly um and uh but you know the broader question of why we sleep and some parts, like some parts of sleep why we have rem sleep why we have dreams uh uh that that those questions are still really unanswered although there's a lot there are a lot of kind of evolutionary and physiological clues um we know that sleep is ne- is needed for, for us to you know consolidate memories and to recuperate and to um uh, to have to, just to have proper function of our bodies and and that's that's true across uh you know many kinds of animals too uh but the the full biology of it is still being unraveled but as as to what makes us fall asleep um that that is better known um but not but in terms of all the puzzle pieces they're not all in, in place but there's a good picture of it in terms of um there's one part of the brain which is sort of the the central control box and that's the hypothalamus and there's part of the hypothalamus uh that becomes active when we fall asleep uh it's the pre-optic area and uh and it makes the that that part of the brain sends out signals that sort of uh cool down the rest of the brain and say say it's time to time to to shift gears um and then there are a lot of theories about all the the mixture of these two basic forces uh being one of them being sleep pressure so when we've stayed awake for a long time we get sleepier and sleepier Um, so there's sleep pressure and there's also the circadian clock, you know, in the, in the middle of the day, we're likely to be awake. And then the middle of the night, we're likely to be asleep. Um, so those two basic forces we have, you know, scientists are kind of on, uh, are taking apart all of those. And we have a good idea about what, what the, the parts of the puzzle are, um, but important to recognize that sleep pressure is not just one thing um and that's uh something that I think that some book some other books um, on on sleep don't really do that well um there's a molecule in the brain called adenosine um and there are receptors for it and it builds up uh or at least it there's more activity for it uh when uh, people stay uh awake for a long time but Um, sleep pressure and sleepiness is not just one thing it's um, and it's not just adenosine there are little enzymatic modifications and and changes in receptors and synapses uh, all over the brain which um, which are part of sleepiness too
1: and then of course in your book um, you present the story as you mentioned of uh, Anna Sumner and then uh, discuss the 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 story or the history of idiopathic hypersomnia so that's a mouthful isn't it um you. could you tell us a little bit about what this um involves exactly uh where did the 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 concept of idiopathic hypersomnia come from um how many people are affected worldwide and what are the symptoms how do you describe this disease or this condition
0: well um there, there are a lot of parts to your question. Um, idiopathic hypersomnia is kind of, there's a tension there between it being um, a well-defined uh, condition with a bunch of symptoms and then sort of a leftover category about people who go through a diagnostic process and they don't meet the, cr- the criteria for sleep apnea or narcolepsy, but in a certain lab in a certain test in the sleep laboratory they fall asleep quickly so uh they meet these criteria for being for idiopathic hypersomnia so they get that diagnosis um uh if we look back the reason why there's this diagnosis the na- even the name is from uh it comes from a a neurologist in, um, Cold War era, Czechoslovakia named, uh, Roth. And, uh, he was, um, important in the study of sleep, uh, because he was, he had a clinic in Prague devoted to, uh, sleep disorders, specifically narcolepsy and hypersomnia before a lot of other clinicians, uh, and um, he was part of a kind of an early group that uh, called the uh Kales Committee that kind of defined how we use EEGs to uh, to define uh, to monitor sleep. And um, and he was the person who really um, introduced this concept of idiopathic hypersomnia into the scientific literature, um, although. <laughs> it was he wrote about people with what we would call ih starting in the 50s uh but i don't think it was called that actually until the 1970s and so roth was kind of this outsider because he was in Czechoslovakia and um uh the a very influential group in terms of um kind of standardizing a sleep medicine was a group of people at stanford in california and um they were more focused on narcolepsy and sleep apnea and so there's there's kind of with with rote having this kind of this concept of people with who had symptoms it's important to recognize that um you know, Roach was interested in narcolepsy, too. And that was actually what attracted him to sleep medicine in the first place. Um, but he recognized fairly early on, that there were, you know, people from all, uh, all over the country were being referred to him, uh, sleepy people. And some of them were kind of the, on the other side of a spectrum of sleepiness from narcolepsy. And for him hypersomnia meant people who um like they didn't fall asleep quickly necessarily but sleep was taking over their life and um it was more about the duration of sleep uh rather than uh the intensity of the of the sleep attack and um so he also and he also defined uh this symptom. he described this symptom called sleep drunkenness and that's in some uh, the, like in this key publication in the 1950s, which I had translated in the book to see who, you know, who are these people uh, um, and sleep drunkenness is sort of this state where people are half awake uh, but, and half asleep. It's like the the brain makes this transition uh, out of sleep part way and then get, get gets stuck. Um, and that's, um, that, that they're not coordinated or they can't really talk, or they they um and it's when they're they may be physically awake and and you know sitting up, but um they're not fully aware. Um and so that that's this this uh state that he uh he describes so well, and it's characteristic of um idiopathic hypersomnia, that, and the long, the need for long sleep duration, people with kind of classic narcolepsy don't sleep more for every 24 hours, uh, than, um, healthy or neurotypical people, because they have also have disrupted nighttime sleep. they're very sleepy. They can transition into sleep quickly, but they don't sleep more. So on the other side of the spectrum, people with hypersomnia, they're they can be sleeping 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And 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 when they wake up, they say, you know, I need more. I don't I don't feel I don't feel rested. So it's kind of it's qualitatively different than narcolepsy. And wrote R- was kind of important in recognizing that and communicating that to other specialists
1: and was this the case with anna Anna sumner as well she was Um, yeah uh,
0: so the the thing that's that was helpful for anna uh is that she did not have go through this other this journey of being uh having a detour when she came in and saw the 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 people at emory uh, she was diagnosed with, uh, idiopathic hypersomnia and it was, and she didn't go on this detour where they said, well, you actually have depress, you probably have a form of depression or you have sleep apnea or you have something else, some metabolic problem. Um, and which a lot of, a lot of people go through those detours, but she didn't go through the, these detours. Um, what, what did happen is that she, uh, was, uh, treated in terms of managing her symptoms with, um, first modafinil and then conventional stimulants. And those didn't really help her. They, they, I mean, they helped her get through the day, but they backfired. The, the, she needed higher doses. She experienced crashes and the sleepiness was still there. It was kind of even increasing in response. Um, so that kind of led to this, you know, moment of um where the the clinicians decided that they needed to take a different uh, strategy
1: and how many others are there like Anna in the world? Do we know? i I uh, in your book, for example, you mentioned that there is now an idiopathic hypersomnia community getting together for patient advocacy.
0: That's right. Um, So the current estimates are in the United States are um, that about one in 10,000 people within, but this is, this is is an estimate that comes from looking at insurance databases. So one in ten thousand uh, people, and that is less than kind of conventional narcolepsy. Which, um, but it has been going up in the, in recent years. And there's also so there's some caveats to that. One is um, that IH is partially a creation of the healthcare system, and that um, so how, how, how the prevalence in other countries, it's probably somewhat similar, but, um, but it's going to be different. So we, we don't know what it's like in outside the United States so much. Um, and it's also the case that a lot of people with uh, idiopathic hypersomnia were diagnosed with other things. Um, and there's kind of this overlap with narcolepsy. And then sometimes they get diagnosed with something else because it would help them get medication and then get um, insurance company reimbursement for it, for it. Um, That has changed over the last few years and there's now even an, an FDA approved medication, but I think that that state of being kind of under the table where people were getting different diagnoses because um, because of the, of the insurance obstacles, um, th- there will be a hangover for that for a long time.
1: Well, actually, um, that's more common than I was expecting. Do we now have a better understanding as to what causes idiopathic hypersomnia? Are there genetic um, factors yeah. or environmental or uh, do we know the underlying causes? causes?
0: Um, yeah, there there are kind of these two basic ideas that that about it being kind of either inborn or acquired. Um, and then there's an idea that it's kind of similar to uh narcolepsy, uh at least the m- most distinctive form of narcolepsy where there's uh mm-hmm. either an infection or inflammation, and that, does something to the brain. And then um, that changes uh, how sleep is regulated. Um, and then just recently, uh, in, from Japan, there's been a study um, showing that a fraction of people with uh, idiopathic hypersomnia have a mutation in um, what's called a gene for orexin. And that is a um, a, neuro, a peptide produced in the brain that um, helps keep you keep us awake, and it has a very important role in narcolepsy in terms of that it the the neurons that produce it are lost, um, but that's not what's happening in in these folks. They have a mutation that makes that kind of interferes with the proper production of the pep of the peptide um and um this was exciting not because it explained so much but but because it was the first genetic study of idiopathic hypersomnia that found anything at all Uh, and um and i don't think that genetics are responsible for most of ih but it's I think that's where the field should go, and uh, partially, and um, there has there's a uh, a group at uh, UCSF at University of California San Francisco that has had remarkable success um, studying families of people who have um, particular um, distortions of sleep and um that means people who have very er who go to sleep very early or go to sleep very late and then um and then more recently they study people who have what they call familial short sleep (laughs) that is to say people who uh who only need four or five hours of sleep per night and then they're healthy even though they only get that small amount um and so IH is um arguably kind of the the opposite that uh they people people with IH need just mu- much more sleep than the the average person. And so there there are uh you know in the in the literature there are examples of people of multiplex families, uh people who, you know, their their mother and their aunt and their sister all have similar diagnosis uh and i think that now we can do uh genetic studies that allow us to find the responsible genes i don't think that most people with an ih diagnosis will um that where you know it will that genetics will will be the the drive the main driving factor but this this kind of study can tell us a lot um and i think that's that that's where the field should go
1: well i wish i could make it with four hours of sleep a day as well yeah <laughs> it's
0: it's it's uh um uh, i've read some articles about the people who who are you know who are these families uh members of these families and they, you know they're they're you know executives at companies and they 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 go on wilderness adventures and then they, they do all this other, like they, they stay busy. <laughs> that's so. Um,
1: that's impressive. The, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> and and that's always, you know, that's always the, 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 the thing that comes out of the, some of this sleep research is that, um, that, you know, the, that the things that, um, you find out about these very rare cases can maybe provide some insights that will help other people just in the way in the same way that um you know people who study these the the researchers who study these very rare cases of um of hyper uh cholesterolemia or or something that messes have led these kinds of studies have led to statins and more uh, and and more recent uh, cholesterol reducing drugs. Um, I think that you know this kind these kinds of um, studies of of sleep genetics can really point the way to a better understanding of just how um, how all of our bodies regulate sleep.
1: Absolutely, and uh, what about treatment methods? could um, IH be cured or treated do we have any effective uh, approaches therapeutics
0: um I think IH can be can be managed uh for some folks uh effectively but it um you know that that is definitely a work in progress uh and then um the whole the story that is described in my book about some of the more unconventional, approaches that had to be tried, um, that shows how there was an, an unmet need, definitely. and, and also that conventional stimulants are really unsatisfactory for a lot of people. Um, but those are the tools that a lot of physicians have familiarity with or experience with. So that's what they, they go to first. Um, and it's also kind of just easier for people to do these, uh, conventional stimulants, stimulants, because a lot of people with ADHD get prescribed them. And it's just kind of, there's an institutional inertia allowing people to do that versus anything else. Um, But the, so there's the, uh, there's the drug companies, and then there's the clinicians. Um, The, the clinicians um, who treat people with sleep disorders have agreed that modafinil, um, is probably a good first line uh, choice as far as uh, what people with an I, a new IH diagnosis could try. Uh, it's not it doesn't work for everybody, but it can help them stay awake and get through the day. Um, it also has, you know, some safety issues as far as some rare skin reactions. Um, on the other side, um, there's a new relatively new um, couple years ago uh, FDA approval for um uh, what what's called Oxidate, which is a medication um, that ha- had been used uh, a lot in the narcolepsy community uh, for a long time for the last 20 years and um, and now it's available in you know, now it's in a low sodium form um because the this medication is was basically a, a salt <laughs> and the people who were taking it uh say 10 years ago uh had to drink the it was so salty that they were getting more sodium from that than than what was recommended for their diet um and so the company that was uh, manufacturing it they came up with the low sodium version and the, um and this 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 is kind of an interesting parallel to to some some other medications in that um, it works in terms of controlling the symptoms uh for a lot of uh for a lot of people who need it but um there it had this medication has a lot of has some safety issues um, in terms of when it's combined with other other drugs or and it's a fairly strong sedative. So it can knock you out, basically. Um uh, it's also very expensive. So there, there are a lot of issues with this medication. It's 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 for some people it helps them. Uh and the fact that just that uh a company was able to get the FDA to approve of this is is remarkable. Um, but I think that, uh, people with IH diagnoses, they, they need more options. Uh, and I think that that will happen in, in the next few years because other companies are pursuing, uh, an approval for the, the IH indication, um, and the and those choice those options will develop.
1: I guess there are still lots to discover on this uh, condition. Um have you found out anything that surprised you uh during the the research for this book?
0: Um well a lot of things didn't turn out like the way that I hoped or the way that I expected. Um when I started the uh working on the book, I thought that the researchers um that who i were was following i thought they were going to find the mysterious sleepy stuff that they're uh that right. they were looking for um that didn't turn out to be the case um although they have made some steps and um for example uh david rye who's uh the neurologist who's kind of the the protagonist for part of the book in terms of um helping Anna Sumner and then driving the research into this mysterious sleepy stuff and which was responsible for Anna's sleepiness and possibly other people's. Um, so he's gotten to the point where he, uh, at a conference, he said, he mentioned, he showed a bunch of data. He said that he, um, he was able to identify this uh, possibly able to identify this stuff, but he wouldn't say what it was. Um, and I hope that he can get to the point where, um, where he will be able to publish what this stuff is. Um, but, uh, that I'll have to uh, check back with him and see, uh, where, where that stands. Um, where there was a lot that I had to cut out actually. Uh, also, for example, uh, something that happened, I thought there was a, uh, a a kind of a weird medication that was being, uh, developed in a clinic. Uh, it was being tested in some clinical trials. It was the first, uh, drug that was specifically tested, that was tested in a clinical trial aimed at people with idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, and that is pentaline tetrazole. Um, and that drug has this kind of weird history. Um, You know, it was used to trigger seizures in people with schizophrenia in the 1930s. Then later it was marketed to elderly people as being this mild stimulant. turns out that if you inject it, a lot of it, it triggers seizures. If you take smaller amounts by mouth, it doesn't trigger seizures and seems to be relatively safe. so the medical world has a lot of experience with this stuff, uh, and I thought that it would might get approved, but the company behind it, um, first they were trying to develop this as kind of a cognitive enhancer for uh, people with Down syndrome, then they pivoted and uh, developed it for uh, idiopathic hypersomnia eventually this, the company didn't get the, they didn't get the results they wanted and the, uh, the company dissolved. Uh, so that was another, uh, you know, twist in the story. Um, there was, and there were a lot of other things that, you know, they didn't turn that out. Like I hoped, or I expected. Um, but there, there's, you know, what was funny was uh one of the people I talked to in the in early on was Don Blywise, who's a, a sleep researcher and a colleague of David Rise and, and the other people at Emory. And he was suggesting, well, if you wait a few more years, the you know, some of these issues may some of these mysteries may be solved, or th- some of these issues may be worked out. And I thought, well, I can't wait that long because. You know, I've been following. You know, some the 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 important stuff is happening right now, <laughs> and um, and so I I had to kind of tie tie a lot of uh, strands together, um, even though maybe uh, you know the, some of the mysteries were not all resolved.
1: <laughs> well, let's see if um, more information will be um, available for us on on this very um unusual um condition let's say and uh, what are you currently working on what's your next project um
0: so i'm partly i'm trying to figure that out uh one one topic which i think could be done uh which hasn't been done is i know i noticed that um there are there's an good book length, uh, histories of other neurological conditions, such as say multiple sclerosis, but there is not really an accessible book length history of narcolepsy. And narcolepsy has been this, um, it's, it's a, it's an interesting story because, um, it's, I mean, if you compare it to, it's, it's something where there's, there are cells that make something important in the brain, and something happens, and they go missing. And um, it's a way of looking at neurological disease that uh, actually is a is a scientific success story, but that success took a long time to happen. I mean, you know, if if compare it to say Parkinson's disease, you know, you have cells that make something important, dopamine they get attacked or um they degenerate um and then there's a way to address that the 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 neurochemical deficiency I mean it's not perfect uh you know people still (laughs) can't reverse Parkinson's uh but the kind of the scientific and medical paradigm of there being this thing that you can replace that is remarkable with lots of other you know psychiatric n- neuropsychiatric conditions they're not there's there's not something you can replace uh so so simply um so narcolepsy is this uh, is, is kind of this amazing story and i think maybe that could be a uh maybe that could be a book um I was just in touch with uh, someone who is a very important part of that study, who's writing, I I think, writing his own memoir. So, and I'm not involved in that. So um, I don't know what um, tactic I will take, but there's, I think there's some work to be done in terms of um, historical papers, um, getting archives from some of the advocacy groups that have been involved in this for a long time. Um, and then more broadly, I'd I just like to do some more freelancing. Uh, and I've developed this niche of um, kind of sleep related neuroscience. And I'd like to keep working on that.
1: Sounds very exciting. Well, Quinn, thank you very much for joining us today.